Kia ora and welcome to Cinema in Context, where we discuss all things film and the connections between. My name is Jeremy Downing. And I'm Sarah Watt. And this month, we do not have William with us. He is over in the UK. I feel like Sarah and William have been doing a bit of a swip de roo swip de roo swap de roo eh, mm-hmm. something, eh, Sarah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we are joined by a wonderful guest. and I'm going to hand it over to Sarah to introduce who is with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I am delighted to introduce you to our special guest today, one of Cinema in Context's genuinely biggest fans he listens to every episode the minute that it's landed and then emails me with feedback and that's because this friend and i have known one another for probably 30 years 30 it could be 30 years ladies and gentlemen mr dan eichblatt hello yes welcome dan you pronounced that beautifully and dan tell us where have you flown in from back to aotearoa new zealand for a vacation Uh, well i've just flown in for um my first visit in three years because of the pandemic Mm -hmm. Um, I live currently in Bahrain, which is a tiny little island off the coast of Saudi Arabia, and I'm a teacher in a high school. And so Dan and I became friends long before I was a teacher, but he was a teacher here in Auckland. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been your main career, I think, hasn't it? That for the majority of our friendship, yes. In English and media, which is convenient, given that English and media are some some of the only things I like to talk about. So that's probably (laughs) why we're still friends. (laughs) And I believe that my classroom was one of the first places where you taught, because I asked you to come and uh, talk to my students about writing film reviews. That's true. For a unit. There's nepotism for you. There you uh, go. Readers, listeners, watchers. It's all about who you know. That's right. Right. Mr. E at Takapuna Grammar back in those days. Yes, that's right. Got me in as the film reviewer for the Sunday Star Times. And Mm. I did what I imagine was a scintillating talk to the young people. (laughs) (laughs) Inspired so many people to go into an underpaid, unrewarding (laughs) job where nobody cares what you say. Um, But at least being able to uh, think and write about films. So yeah, thanks for that, Dan. It doesn't sound too dissimilar to teaching, let's be honest. Exactly. (laughs) Not at all. Um, But, well, thank you very much for um, having me as a guest on your um, pod. As you pointed out, I have been listening pretty avidly for at least the last four years, but before then as well. But when I moved to Bahrain, I had a, you know, it was a a tough time um, adjusting to a completely different way of life. So it was very, one of the things that made me feel a little more grounded was like putting on a podcast and hearing my friend's voice. Um, and now I feel like I've got to know Jeremy and William uh, through that as well, even mm. though I think we're just meeting for the first time today. Mm. <laughs> well, it's lovely to have you on board. Thanks for filling in for William. My pleasure. I Thank agree. You. It's great to have you here, Dan. And uh, we sort of thought we'd take this opportunity to change up the format. We like to do that every now and again at Cinema and Context. Usually, we would be discussing each month at Cinema and Context uh, two films, one current and one retrospective with some connection. It could be the same director, the same actor, or a similar theme. But, you know, like I said, we're going to be doing something a little bit different, which is the movies that made us. We're going to be <laughs> talking about five different films each that capture a little bit about who we are, what we think about cinema, and how we like to share cinema with others. We'll probably come into this this, this discussion as well. Usually, we would be giving a spoiler warning because we would be discussing two films in quite a lot of detail. Uh, I think for these these types of episodes, like our end of the year summaries and, and similar things, we, we're a little bit more tight-lipped on the spoilers. So just be aware of that team as we go through. We'll do our best, if you're listening, to keep it spoiler-free. Uh, but everybody has a different uh, threshold, a continuum of spoiler. Um, I don't know what the word is. 
Uh, fluidity. Yes. fluidity. Yes, that's right. It's yeah. a spectrum. <laughs> it's also worth mentioning we are recording online. I currently have COVID. It's the first time I'm pretty sure I've had COVID. So I am well and truly isolating away from Sarah and Dan, especially with Dan uh, traveling and Sarah very soon to travel again. I would not want to give you something that would uh, disrupt those plans. So that's where we are, team. That's where we are. All right. The five categories that we're going to look at today is the film that we've watched the most, which we just were talking about. It was a bit hard to quantify, but we're going to get there. Uh, the film that we think anyone could enjoy. I sort of got a, um, a parenthesis on this, like something you could play at a movie night. You've got lots, lots of different um, tastes, perspectives, ages, that kind of thing. Uh, a film that you would suggest to a burgeoning cinephile. I think about my nephew, who's 15 years old, and I gave him 1,001 movies you must, must watch before you die. That, that, oh, kind, of, that kind of relationship or, or suggestion. The film that you see yourself in or one that you've really connected with and your favorite film of all time. So those are our <laughs> categories. Such a, sim such a simple, simple question. Simple task. Yeah. We'll be done in about 10 minutes, probably. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just read off the list and go home. <laughs> all right. Well, let's let's do it. Sarah. Sarah, you start us off. What is the film that you have watched the most? I found this one the most difficult category <clears throat> because I don't... My husband keeps a list on Letterboxd of every single film he's seen and the date that he or we have seen it. And he'll say to me periodically, oh, we last watched this in 2018. Well, I don't have such a list, but I am going to take a punt on a film that I know that I have watched many, many, many times. And I don't know if it's the most watched, but it'll do for now. And it's the holiday oh my god it's actually <laughs> i am not a rom-com person mm. i am the person who hates um four weddings and a funeral <gasps> i despise love actually um Fair. but i adore notting hill um but the holiday is absolutely a film that i will go to if i am feeling sick or sad or or, or i will watch it at least once a year several times a pandemic the <laughs> thing with the holiday is this Kate Winslet, who's basically just like me, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Kate Winslet plays uh, a young British uh, writer for a newspaper, and she does a house swap with Cameron Diaz, uh, who's also just like the American version of me. Um, and Cameron Diaz is a, uh, um, a movie trailer uh, director living in Los Angeles, and these two wonderful women do they're miserable come uh, Christmas time or the holidays as they call it in America and they do a house swap and so Cameron Diaz's character goes to live in Kate Winslet's little snowy cottage in um, Surrey and Kate Winslet goes and lives in the most amazing uh, mansion in like Beverly Hills or something and um, they take over one another's lives not in a single white female way in a, a legitimate <laughs> house swap kind of way and then inevitably, somebody's probably going to fall in love with Jude Law and somebody might just fall in love with Jack Black. And the whole thing is basically vicarious living. Or what is it called? It's like, you know, you project. It's like a fantasy of like the grass is always greener. Absolutely. You know? And boy, is the grass green in Los Angeles. And every yeah. time, this isn't really a spoiler, it happens pretty early on, but every time Kate Winslet's character wakes up jet lagged, and um, opens the curtains and looks out onto the swimming pool at this wonderful L.A. villa. I just think, oh, my goodness, I wish we had house swapping opportunities <laughs> and that could be my world. You know, it's so fun and it's touching and it is 
would you believe it? There is actually a, a very, very moving um, sort of sub-thread going throughout. With the old man. With the old man. Yes. Eli Wallach. Yes. That's right. Eli Wallach, or Wallach, um, an old man who's worked in Hollywood for years um, and who's, you know, sort of losing the will to live. And Kate Winslet sort of befriends him. And She's like a little sunray in his yes, life. Yes, she is. Yeah. And even that is beautiful and inspiring and makes you think we should take care of our elders. Yes. And, <laughs> you know. Um, it's a very shiny movie. It's very Like everyone shiny. looks amazing, and clean and bright. Yes. And fluffy. Everyone's wearing yeah. beautiful fluffy jumpers and silk shirts and snazzy boots and they have beautiful hair. And Is it a Nancy Myers movie? I think it is Nancy Myers. I was going to look that up, actually. It is. Yes. It sounds... Yeah. Do you know, I, I mean, I can't believe I'm leading with this one because I wanted everybody listening to actually think that I had credibility <laughs> and I realise I might have shot it in the foot right now. You might have. But but this this film I can watch over and over and over and I will just say, and then I'll let it go, geez, you shouldn't have started me on this. There is a scene where Jack Black, who is a music composer of film music in Hollywood, which would be my ideal Ooh. job if I wasn't like on a podcast. Um, so second only to this. Um, <laughs> he takes Kate Winslet to the move to the video store. Do you remember yes, the video I do. store? Yes. I spent all of the 90s going to the video store with with prospective paramours and we would show each other videos and we would rent rent movies and the the little scene that they have where he talks to her about film music absolutely touches me because he's a total nerd I married a total film nerd albeit not a composer but an editor um and and there there it's just it's it just evokes my life of that era mm. falling in love over film and um that's lovely and falling in love with a kind man mm. instead of a jerk so yeah well it's interesting that you bring up the holiday because i actually rewatched it for the first time since i'd seen it originally mm. i rewatched it i think over christmas good lord because i was just like indulging in that christmas kind of like i'm gonna watch a snowy rom-com and were you in bahrain for christmas it wasn't was exactly in, snowy and cold i was in actually i was in barcelona um oh so it was a bit colder it was a it was cold yeah. okay it wasn't snowing but it was cold but so it's kind of fresh in my mind this this film that i would not normally watch um it is it is fun but there's what I realized is there's no antagonist. There's no villain. What about Rufus There's Sorrow? very little. Yeah. But everyone ends up kind of like they have little bumps in the road, but it, it all ends like there's never any drama. Well, I think Rufus. Have there's you seen not it, much Jeremy? Have I have. I mean, there's the tension in the fact that they are living a fantasy and it's all going to end. And so it's the the reality of their, their oh. this life, but it's not real. And they're going to have a well, holiday. Or, or the, yes, that's yeah. right. It's temporary more like, isn't it? You know, they're going to go home after Christmas, but before New Year. And then too bad if you've fallen in love with the love of your life, because you might have to give that up. But it's not the kind of movie that would keep those characters apart. No. Well, it isn't. No, it isn't. It, you're it's, correct it's that it isn't. It's very nice. It's it's jolly and yes. it's kind. It, you're right. There isn't the dramatic tension of, oh, my goodness. Um how is this going to end? Mm. But I think there is the how will we get there? Yes. And I would say that for me, Rufus Sewell absolutely is um, the antagonist. So he's the oh. jerky. He's a fiance. cad. He's a total cad. So he, you know, he's messing Kate Winslet around. And I do think, I I will say, I have a real frustration with relationship movies when the, when the characters, particularly the female characters, 
behave in a way that I think, for crying out loud, pull yourself together, move on. He's clearly not right for you. And I don't have a lot of patience for idiots making idiotic choices, which is so mean, but I think it's because I'm quite old now <laughs> and been there, done that. And, um, and, but, but while there's a part of me screaming at Kate Winslet, do not fall for it, let it go. I, it's very well written. It's mm. very credibly written as to why somebody like Iris, who's quite smart and quite self-composed, um, would make that mistake. That's that's just And she's of, so likable that you kind so of likeable. you can't really judge her harshly. No. Yeah. You can't judge I think it's one of the last few Cameron Diaz films that of any kind of um quality. She's yes. she's finished up now, hasn't she? I think she's supposedly coming back. Do you mean the remake of Annie was not a quality film? Is that, yeah. is that what you're saying? That she was miscast as Miss Hannigan? Yeah. Or, or that dreadful one. She um, wasn't the second coming of Carol Burnett, it turned out. Or the counsellor, that dreadful one that Ridley oh, Scott made. Oh, didn't she have made. sex with a car? She kind of Something like, like that? Yes, there's sexual activity on, yeah. the, on the hood of a car. I mean, I with the car. I but anyway, there. nah, so I hear you. Yep. The holiday was uh, Cameron Diaz's finest hour. Sorry to besmirch Cameron Diaz's nope, name totally at fine. the end. So that's me. <laughs> that's me. I love that. I, I, I mean, I love Kate Blanchett. Uh, Kate Blanchett. I love Kate Blanchett as well. Same. Kate Winslet. Uh, yeah. And so that is, you know, when I watched that movie, I think I probably watched it with my mum. And Eli Wallace showed up. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm all for this. Uh, it's like The Devil Wears Prada or all those kind of films. Oh, yes. It's very easy to yeah. watch. That's, and that's slightly problematic in parts uh, and mm. really problematic in other parts. Um, <laughs> it's very it's it's easy. very white. It's very Caucasian. It's very white. Yeah. There isn't even I, a black best friend. No. I have an issue with there yeah. is a black best friend in Devil Wears Prada. But, yeah. but Holiday, yeah. But in, in Devil Wears Prada, they keep talking about her being fat. And mm. I'm like, Anne Hathaway is like one of the skinniest people in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what is going on? I feel like that was taken from the novel because oh, I did is, read the novel. That is taken from the novel, and that yeah. that's part of yeah, that's part of the thing. So yeah. who's next then for their Dan, most Dan, watched film? Watched well, actually, the yeah, Sarah's uh, pro provided a bit of a um, a good segue mentioning video uh, video stores um, <clears throat> because my my film was okay. So back in the day, back in the late eighties and nineties, my family didn't have a VCR, so it was a bit of a treat maybe once a month to go to the video store and rent a VCR and then get a video, like one for me and my sister and one for my parents. Mm. And um, you would think that having a treat like that would have made me watch more than one film, but I always went back to the same film. You are a man after my own heart. Yeah. And what is that film? And that film is um, the, I think, 1988 masterpiece, uh, Beetlejuice. Oh, good Lord. Um, Tim Burton, yeah, it mm. is Tim Burton. Um, and I feel like that was—I feel like that was the film that really kicked off my interest in film and the possibilities of what film can do. Mm. Like it was so imaginative and so uh, gleeful, and kind of it had some subversiveness to it. And I can trace like my love of a lot of things back to that film and, and watching it at every opportunity that I got. Um, like that film had Michael Keaton, it had Winona Ryder, it started my lifelong love affair with Gina Davis and mm, all of mm, her work. Mm. Uh, Tim Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara. That's exactly right, Jeremy. Um, that wonderful scene at the dinner table, um, set to Deo, 
um, the Banana Boat song. Oh, I remember. Yep. Yeah. Oh my gosh. The 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 design of that film, the uh, stop motion animation. Good lord. The the wacky kind of Michael Keaton uh, performance, like it it all just coalesced into something that was really really. It just sparked a young guy's formative. Yeah, totally formative. How many times do you think you've seen it? I would hazard a guess at fifteen. Wow. Maybe I don't. I mean, it's hard to remember. Wow, well, though. Okay. Um, and it was one of the first videos I bought for myself when I was like in a position to buy myself a mm-hmm. a video mm-hmm. and a VCR. Mm-hmm. But it was definitely Beetlejuice was definitely a to- it was a toss up between that and um, Bridesmaids, which I feel mm-hmm. like I've seen probably the same number of times but i felt like beetlejuice was like a really formative film so i thought that was good for this episode absolutely yeah. that's awesome do you guys have memories of beetlejuice was that a was that an important film for either of you i, I was two years old sorry to pull the, oh. the age card but i was two years old when it came out and i and you know it's quite scary so i didn't watch it till i was it is uh, probably probably when I was a young adult, actually, um, and I loved it. And what I love about Beetlejuice, and it's going to link to my one of my favorite movies because nice. it's from another visionary director um, mm. that falls into the same traps, I think, as Tim Burton, is that it's before computer generation. And some mm. of those visual directors they rely a lot on CGI to have their vision fulfilled. And there's something so wonderful. I agree with you, Dan. The stop animation yeah. and the way that they do things in that movie, I don't know how they do it. Mm. I don't know how, like, there's a scene with the person that's been run over, um, and they're sort of moving through um, yes. a really thin crack in a wall, and I'm like, yeah. very clever use of, of movie tricks. Um, and the, the woman who smokes out of, her, out of her throat, she's got a, a hole yeah. in her throat and she yeah. smokes out of it, yeah. It's like uh, in Peter Jackson's Brain Dead, there's a, mm. which is quite different, but there's a scene where, like, custard is coming out of it. <laughs> yes. a neck slit uh, quite a different scene but yeah also the house the set is just incredible mm-hmm. and, yeah. and the way that they the way they they play with everything in the movie um yeah i think cool. one of my favorite one of my favorite parts of the whole film is the very beginning the credit sequence um where you're kind of traveling over what looks like a, a town almost like a um like a helicopter shot tracking over a town and and over roads and stuff and it comes up to the the house uh of gina davis and alec baldwin and it kind of pans up or or tilts up and then a massive tarantula crawls over the house Mm. so it's like you you think it's a real house but it's actually just a model which Mm. is in their basement that's very tie into another one of my films later it's almost like we planned this this is amazing (laughs) (laughs) interesting i think yeah so jeremy what's your most viewed film well, I love that you bring up that memory of going to the video store and hiring a VCR. I, my parents bought a VCR when I was, we were living in Wellington at the time, so I must have been about five or six years old. Um, so we had it with us when we moved to Nelson. And I remember um, this film being one of those movies that we would go on Friday nights to the video store and there would be one video for our parents and one video for us kids. Yeah. And I think this movie was probably one that was for the parents. And then they said, oh, let's show the kids this. So we probably got it out a few weeks later. Um, and it is Strictly Ballroom, 1992, oh, Baz, wow. which we may actually talk about at a future episode. We'll see how we go. We're keen to do mm. Elvis and Strictly Ballroom, but we'll see if that mm. pans out. Um, but Strictly Ballroom for me 
has this energy about it that um, is a Baz Luhrmann style, but it doesn't always cohere through the whole film and as other works. But I think with Strictly Ballroom, it's incredibly heightened. The characters are almost cast in stone. They're so, it's like Commedia dell'arte or like clowning. Like they're just so larger than life. Um, the dancing is, you know, when it, moments of fantasticness and lots of very um, good trickery on the camera. Uh, and it's just, there's something about that movie that, it always makes me happy and I always love the trajectory. It's like the ugly duckling story, which is again, it's probably a bit problematic, but the ugly duckling story and the um kind of the 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 outcast, the footloose storyline, right? The outcast that pushes against the system, um, all kind of coming together in this wonderful moment at the end. And I would also pick this for my second category, which is a film that I would use for a um a group uh, viewing. A group night, but I'll yeah. pick yeah. something else for that for today. Um yeah, and I, don't, I actually yeah. think it's Baz Luhrmann's greatest movie, and he's made lots of good films. Uh, I do feel like, like I mentioned with Tim Burton, it's before computer generation. Yeah. He had to create things um, in ways that, you know, he, I think Milan Rouge, he really jumped into the CGI, but Strictly Ballroom and Romeo and Juliet really had to rely on in-camera trickery, which is just mm. really cool to watch. Yeah, Jeremy, I've not seen it, I think, since it came out. And I will have seen it at least once, maybe twice, but I don't know. I'm going to have to revisit it for our next podcast. But am I right in saying there are several um, dance numbers? There are. Um, Scott Hastings, uh, the lead yeah. character, who was played <laughs> by was Paul, Paul Mercurio. 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 Oh, yeah, Paul Mercurio. That's the name that I remember. Yeah, yeah. so he, he is a fantastic dancer. And so... Yeah. There are lots of scenes with him, like whether it's the opening sequence or there's a scene by himself where he's dancing. And then there's the storyline with um, Fran, just Fran, played by Tara. Tara Tara Maurice. Um, She wasn't a dancer and neither was his original dance partner, Liz. Mm. Liz, played by um, Gia Carides. I'm reading it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so neither of them were dancers, and so they did a lot of training. There was a lot of like stunt doubles doing dancing with Scott Hastings, because uh, he was a dancer, right? The yeah. reason I ask is, um, I wonder whether with these films that we can watch time and again, yeah, like my mum will rewatch The History Boys and Mamma Mia till <laughs> the cows come home, and both of those have set pieces, and I I feel as though if one is inclined towards um, musicals. Um, or, or, you know, films around the performing arts, then yes, they're very rewatchable also mm. because you get that that joy of watching the song and dance number or the dance number as in Strictly Ballroom, which is a, a rewatchable thing. Do you know what I mean? Well, it's, it's kind of spectacle, isn't it? Like mm. those set pieces are very kind of old Hollywood spectacle. And I think, Jeremy, I, I think uh, Strictly Ballroom is probably my favourite Baz Luhrmann film like i really like moulin rouge but i feel like as his career has gone on it's he's a lot harder to love for Mm -hmm. me personally Mm -hmm. um like as an english teacher you know with the great gatsby it's such a difficult film to watch um sorry that's a total tangent but um (laughs) but strictly ballroom is wonderful it's like a a a comfortable pair of slippers and it's totally predictable you know how it's like a sports movie it's like a baseball movie and like you know he's going to win in the end and everything's going to work out but it's such fun getting getting there there Mm. and having those those dancing set pieces that Mm. are filmed in such a 
at the time I think it was like a really original mm. kinetic kind of film style that now we've kind of got used to as the Baz Luhrmann style that's but true. at the time it was really exciting and electrifying and it was around that same time that Australian cinema had like a like a, there was a lot of camp going on in Australia yeah Queen of the Desert Muriel and Muriel's and, Wedding yeah, and exactly. we just rewatched. I just watched Muriel's Wedding with um, the people I'm staying with at the moment and no oh, one really? had seen it and it, my gosh it's a good film it's yeah. devastating yeah, me too. yeah yeah it's, it's devastating it's really heartbreaking isn't it yeah yeah but it's funny as well and yeah. Tony Collette I mean you can see why she became a, a superstar after that and I'll say about, like, I agree with you, Dan. One of the things I will say about Baz Luhrmann that he's maintained through his whole career is his collaboration with other artists. You know, he's got mm. his team. He collaborates on all of his soundtracks, which makes it mm. really exciting. And I think that adds to the fact that it's not always lightning in a bottle because mm. it's he, he gives over so much to the people around him. Mm. Um, that when it all kind of does come together, it's, it's wonderful. Like, the get down. I don't, don't know if you saw the first... Um, couple of episodes of the get down it's a netflix tv series that he directed which is okay. fantastic and then the tv series goes downhill um yeah. after he sort of leaves but the other thing i was just reading an, an article today um and he was talking about it was an interview between or a conversation between him and george miller mm. and he was talking about the one film that he lost a battle against the studio he always thought he could win those battles but he lost this one was australia um and that you know, he, he wasn't able to kind of complete the movie that he wanted to. And he's got enough footage. He's going to make a six-part miniseries called I Faraway heard. Downs, which yeah. I'm looking forward to because I love the first half of Australia. And then it just, like, it, the last half, I'm like, what's going on? Australia yeah. is one of those films that I, I know I've seen that I refuse to believe it exists. Because, and I like... know I haven't, and I refuse to see it. <laughs> okay. So there we go. So we're agreed. <laughs> Sorry. It's really <laughs> the stuff that's good in it is really good in it. And he was talking about they were talking about the um the transferability of story and how like different different audiences in different parts of the world respond to things through their own lens. And so mm. the stolen generation and of indigenous peoples in Australia yeah. connected with the stolen generation and I think under Fidel Castro or something like that somewhere in oh. South America um, where oh, something wow. similar happened and there's been no reparations of any kind right. or any not even an apology. You know so um. I feel yeah. like you might want to cut and paste this part, Jeremy, into our Baz Luhrmann episode. Yeah, true. I mean, it's just <laughs> what's going to come. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, Dan, do you want to let us know the film that you can enjoy or you think anyone can enjoy? Okay, so I this is one of those categories that I kind of spitballed about 15 different names and they would all work. But I'm going to go with my gut on this one. Um, and again, it's a bit of a nostalgic choice from my younger years in my formative cinema formation um and that is um indiana jones and the last crusade good lord Ooh. yeah part three um the last indiana jones film as far as i'm concerned yeah yeah um <clears throat> so it was it's got so many appealing aspects to it it's i i thought about raiders of the lost ark and i thought about temple of doom but Raiders, I don't think, is as crowd-pleasing as Temple as um, Last Crusade. And Temple of Doom is hugely problematic <laughs> these mm. days, uh, when culturally and mm. ethnically. Um, and it's also extremely violent. Very, quite scary. So that I think that kind of excludes it. But Temple of Doom is like Indiana Jones at, its, at his purest. Um, you've got 
a, a prologue with River Phoenix as a young indie. Mm. You've got the 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 dad relationship with Sean Connery, mm. which is like Harrison Ford and Sean Connery as mm. as dad and son. I think that's always going to be a crowd pleaser. Mm. I feel. Mm. You've also got that kind of meta-ness of having Sean Connery in a film that has a lot of similarities with a James Bond film. Like a lot of the set pieces in Last Crusade are very Bondian, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It moves at a breakneck speed. Like there are so many scenes and scrapes and like adventures. Like there's an escape from a sewer that's full of rats after they've discovered like they've got the 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 little rubbing from the the tomb and it's all just like following these puzzles that have to be solved you've got harrison ford doing a bit of comedy accent work i think it's the funniest harrison ford's ever been um which is saying something which is saying something because there was i i saw i saw a headline yesterday about harrison ford grumpy old man at 80 but the grumpy old man who's been the grumpy old man his whole life exactly yeah 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 um I think also in Temple, uh, Last Crusade, he's less hands, Han Solo kind of um, reckless, mischievous imp and more kind of like the character's more lived in. And he's more of like there's more emphasis on him being an, a professor at the at the um, university before he goes on the, um, I think Denim Elliott kind mm-hmm. of gets in touch with him, um, the late great Denim Elliott. And then you've also got the love interest of Alison Duty and the double crossing and the Nazis that are so easy to root against. It's not quite as culturally problematic as the other films. And then you've got the wonderful final kind of situation with like having to solve all those little puzzles and riddles. And then the the bad guy's hubris um, leads him to the most opulent uh, cup and it, of course that couldn't be the cup of Christ it had to be the simplest most basic mm. because Jesus was a carpenter and 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 as poor. was Harrison Ford as was Harrison <laughs> Ford yeah. before he became Han Solo <laughs> very meta um, I love that you bring this up Dan I love sold this. it to me eh? have I yeah, I yeah. really the more I thought about it I was like yeah this is a crowd pleaser and there's like there's no strong language there's no like um, sex. Well, there's a bit, oh, I but can't not be much. Doing with that. Can't but like, be doing with sex in movies. Everyone would, everyone <laughs> would enjoy Indiana Jones. Oh, I lovely! Think. Yeah, so wonderful final cool. shot as well. They're literally right off into the sunset, and the yeah. credits sort of roll. It's a mm-hmm. really long shot, if I remember correctly, because the credits roll for a while. That's and true. Do you know yeah, um, yeah. what's his name? Julian Glover, who plays a villain. Do you know who he is? He's in Game of Thrones. Did you know that? I've never watched Game of Thrones. Neither have oh, I. Oh. Okay, well, for listeners out there, he's Pycelle, the <laughs> old man in Game of Thrones um, that, that lives in the King's uh, in, in King's Landing. Um, I have to say, I, I agree with you about Temple of Doom. I also think it's a messy movie. Like it's, mm. I think it's the offcuts of sequences from the first film. But mm. what it does have, in my opinion, is one of the greatest opening sequences of all time. And this is the musical yes. side of me coming out. Yes. But it's, um, is it Kate, Kate Capshaw? She ended up, Kate I think Capshaw, she's yeah. just Steven Spielberg's wife. They got married yes. in that movie. She yeah. sings Anything Goes in, um, I believe, Cantonese. Cantonese? Yeah. 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 Which is wonderful and it just makes no sense. And it's yeah. there. And it, and yeah. it happened. And it, I'm so glad it happened because that is, I totally agree with you. That's what that sequence almost put that film into my, like made that film my answer. But um, yeah, the rest of the film doesn't quite hold up to the, to the opening sequence. Mm. Yeah. Sarah, so jump in, tell us your film that you would suggest to a group of people at the end of a dinner. Everyone's a bit tired. They're ready for a couple of hours of fun. 
Where are we going, Sarah? Tell us. Well, don't say Requiem for a Dream. <laughs> no, not Requiem for a Dream. What a movie, guys. No, I think we're going on a little bit of a journey Ooh. with Jason Bateman, Rachel McAdams, <gasps> yes. Kyle Chandler, uh, Sharon Horgan from Ireland, Jesse um, Plemons, Jesse Plemons, mm. and Billy. Billy McStupiderface. What's Magnuson? his name? Billy Magnuson. Oh my gosh, ladies and gentlemen, game night. What a good time. Unbelievable. Yep. So, went to see game night thinking, oh yeah, whatever. Absolutely freaking loved it. Um, a couple of weeks later, got on an aeroplane. We watched it again on the aeroplane. A couple, oh, 10 days after that, it was New Year's Eve. We were with family and we weren't out partying because that's not how we roll. And we watched Game Night. Um, beginning to sound like it's my my most watched film. Uh, I don't know that that's quite the case, but holy mackerel, I've never met anybody who didn't like it. And I do think, therefore, it's okay, apart from Jeremy's face down the I channel, haven't seen it. Well, that's all right. At least you haven't, like, But I love games. It. Oh my god, you would love Game Night. Game I wrote night um, I wrote an article about it on um, flicks.co.nz um, about why Game Night is I an, think under, I read that. an underappreciated masterpiece. Of course, then everybody was like, it is a masterpiece, which made it appreciated. But um, <laughs> but but point being, what a what a terrific film! It is funny, mm -hmm. it is clever. Jason Bateman plays. The role that he plays in everything horrible bosses ozark you name it but he is the kind of guy who can get away with being himself he even still wears the <laughs> nike sneakers and the plaid shirt and the tucked into the mm. jeans guy yeah but he is adorable always mm -hmm. rachel mcadams is so funny and so cutesy and so great mm -hmm. um and all the aforementioned characters or, or actors um are absolutely terrific sharon and horgan is wonderful. sharon horgan is amazing yeah. they all are and the wonderful thing about the film is it's not pure rom-com it is mystery it double triple quadruple crosses um I, I mean, you don't need to even know anything about a, a plot. It's just a game night that's taken too far. It is such a good time. And, and it is so rewatchable. And someone gets sucked into an uh, an airplane um, propeller. propeller. I think we might call that something of a spoiler. Oh, I didn't say who it was. No, you didn't say who. <laughs> no, that's I do right. Love, I do love a good <laughs> propeller explosion scene. Well, there we know, go. Exactly. Well, there we go. So yeah. there you go. It, does, it literally has something for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> that's very nice. So, Jeremy, please take that under advisement. Yes. Um, well, you, you know how much of a massive board game fan I am. So uh, It's been one that I've, everyone who finds out I haven't seen it as a movie and board game, they're like, you haven't seen Game Night? Yeah. Which, you know, when people do that lots to you, you kind of get an attitude about a movie and you're like, oh, yeah. 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 And so may that's I just say, the connection to what Dan said about Beetlejuice is the very, very beginning of Game Night is like a helicopter shot over a small town is and it? then it comes up to the house. Um, no, it's the reverse. What it is, is it looks as though, sorry, it looks as though it's a shot over a game board like a Monopoly board with little houses and whatnot. Oh. And then it gets to the house and the house becomes real and Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams oh. characters come out of it. So actually, it's the reverse of Beetlejuice. Well, if it's you still get a what I mean. Yes, it's a yeah. connection. Mm. Here we go. No, no large tarantula, though. Mm -mm. <laughs> different what's, film, different, different what's movie. What's your um, something for everyone film? Jeremy? Well, like I said, I think you know, Strictly Ballroom would always be that that film that mm. you know, particularly if people hadn't seen it. Um, mm. But I'm going to go with uh, a classic, and I don't really, I don't have much more to say to build up to it. Just to say that the film is. 
1985's Back to the Future. Uh, by yeah. Robert Zemeckis. Why you know, not? That, yeah. that movie, one of the things that really strikes me about that film every time I see it, and it's the one thing that I think it has over the sequels, and I love the sequels, mm. but the one thing that the first one has over the sequels is that everything in that movie, particularly before he goes back in time, in some way pays off later on in the film, or in some way you need to know these details to get the joke or to get that plot point. And it's it's an expertly crafted script. And I, you know, I've got a T-shirt that says Twin Pines Mall. But one of the mm. things I always wish it had on it was Lone Pine Mall because, um, you know, oh, this is a spoiler. But ah, if you haven't seen Back to the Future, what are you doing? Um, yeah. <laughs> One of those one of those pines gets destroyed in the past, and so when um, the end of the film they, they return to the mall, it's Lone Pine Mall, which I always thought oh. was a wonderful little um, detail that would have cost a lot of money to produce that sign, that little detail in there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, wonderful performances from Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd, as well as the entire cast, and music's fantastic. And I, I love the idea of a science fiction time travel film going back a generation to the 1950s. Um, it's it's just wonderful. Yeah, mm. back to the future. Mm. Lovely. Yeah, it's it's comforting. I think Michael J. Fox is always a real kind of... He's like Tom Cruise. Like, you, you feel in safe hands when you see Michael J. Fox. There's something kind of reassuring about it. Do you think that's the t- that's because of our age and the time we grew up in? Totally. It's the family ties. Mm. Alex P. Keaton... Yeah, he was he was just always a presence. If you grew up in the eighties, he was he was the guy. That's true, isn't yeah. it? And I mean, if you're like me, we I look back on the eighties as being the good old days, the safe days. <laughs> I tend to forget about cocaine wars and the Cold War, and you know, <laughs> the AIDS crisis and the AIDS crisis yeah. and um, the IRA bombings and things like that, and just think, you know, those were the halcyon days, and yeah. that the world's all gone to pot now. And yeah, I agree that Michael J. Fox is sort of emblematic of totally, um, yeah. of those times. Yeah. Oh. I think that's a great choice, Jeremy. Mm. Well, thank you. Shall I move on to something a little bit more, well, not too much more Stranger, but it came you out 10 years later. Go on, yeah, then. switching it up. So this is my film that I would suggest to a burgeoning cinephile. I had to really Ooh. think about this. Um, you know, what's a movie that would be still accessible to somebody who's not quite fully into the lynches or like i think mm. i said to sarah my message the cronenbergs i've never really liked cronenberg i want to like cronenberg but mm. his yeah. films always leave me kind of feeling a bit dry oh, i don't know mm-hmm. let down maybe love lynch love me some lynch um but the film that i've got with is terry gilliam's 1995 12 monkeys oh wow which Good at Lord. the time was Mostly. probably quite a well well taken accepted film but i think the fact that it's almost 30 years later, 20 years, 30 years, almost 30 years later, um, Mm. adds a layer of, um, you know, you have to kind of be open to watching an old movie, which for for a burgeoning cinephile, I would say Mm. is is, is a good thing to to push past. But 12 Monkeys, it is um, starring Bruce Willis in a very un-Bruce Willis-like role. Uh, Brad Pitt in a very un-Brad Pitt-like role. Yeah. He got nominated for an Academy Award for. Yeah, he did. Um, I think so, yeah. And the wonderful Madeline Stowe, who I haven't really seen in much recently <laughs> uh, for a while. But um, yeah, story of, of time travel. The, the world has been destroyed by a virus, a very timely. Uh, and Bruce Willis's character is sent back in time to get an original, unmutated version of the virus so those in the future can. Good Lord. Um, can. Have you seen it, Sarah? 
I'm, I've seen it back in the day mm. and now I'm like, hey, oh, virus movie. That's, mm. you know, current. Yeah. Although it's clearly not that current, current. But, um, <laughs> and I, and now you're piquing my interest. Oh, because it's I, really good. I think I saw it the once and went, <clears> oh, that's really good, but gross. And I don't see that again and put it away. Mm. I would watch it again just for Brad Pitt's performance because yeah. that was, I remember that was really indelible. And I was, I think that year I was super into the Oscars at the time. And I, I felt really bad that he didn't win. Mm. You know, when, you, when you're like, you deserved it. Mm. I don't know who won that year, but I felt like he deserved it. It was a great performance. And it's mm. sort of at that, you know, it's, it's that perfect um, Oscars kind of bait, isn't it? You know, somebody yeah. with with significant mental health issues, which we probably would, I don't know, maybe it doesn't hold up as well today. I haven't, I haven't no, gone back recently and watched it. Yeah. But the conceit of the film is that Bruce Willis goes back in time and is put into a... Uh, an asylum institution because they believe that his rantings are of of a, of a paranoid, delusional, schizophrenic nature, um, and really he's just been sent back too early. Um, yeah, so it's it's a great movie, and I would also say that it's a gateway into more Stranger Gilliam esque stuff. So you could mm. go kind of Fisher King, which is more existentially strange, or Brazil, which is just very weird, uh, and I think that that would then get you into some. Um, more stranger territories from there. So yeah. there you go, 12 Monkeys. Over to you, Sarah. What's your film that you would suggest <laughs> to a burgeoning cinephile? Can I just say, I love how you say, well, 12 Monkeys is a 1995 <laughs> film, so, you know, it's trying to get them to go back and look at an old movie. To me, 1995 <laughs> is very current. Because my film, ladies and gentlemen, is a 1990 film by my favourite director of all time, Uncle Marty, Martin Scorsese, Ooh. and it is 1990s Goodfellas. Ooh. Now, the reason Goodfellas is, for me, a film that every burgeoning cinema, cinephile should see is partly because it's in my top five best films of my whole entire life and always will be. Um, it is... It is known to be a fantastic film. This is an esoteric Sarah, you know, coming up with something too random. It is a fantastic crime genre, gangster movie. Who the heck doesn't love that kind of stuff? Full respect to anybody who's a burgeoning cinephile who feels that actually if a film is too violent, that that's not for them. And unfortunately, that will put the kibosh on them watching uh, Goodfellas. Um but honestly, the performances, Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, and of course, the late and great uh, Ray Liotta in indisputably his uh, finest film. Um, Lorraine Bracco, who went on to be in The Sopranos, just flipping everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. The whole film is a masterclass. And also, of course, as you two as media and English teachers will appreciate, it literally is a masterclass in the use of voiceover, in the use of editing, in the use of the extraordinary, very, very long tracking and dolly shots, mm. uh, the, the Copacabana shot in particular. Everybody knows it. The soundtrack, the use of the music, um, everything about Goodfellas is absolutely, as far as I'm concerned, if you're going to get interested in film you have to see it because you've got to have a view on it mm. and actually it's all right if for some completely inexplicable and as yet unimaginable reason you don't like it <laughs> because you've still got to see it in order to to have that view or to know or to be able at very least to get the joke when you're hanging out with friends and yeah. you're all sitting around a table getting drunk and then someone says am i funny are you are you, are you what, what he doesn't say are you talking to me no i've ruined it what's he say he says um you think i'm funny 
You, do I amuse you? Yeah, do I amuse uh, you? Do I amuse you? You've got to understand where that's coming from. Otherwise, forget about it. Forget, forget <laughs> it. It actually isn't a line from that. That's from Donny Brasco. But anyway, so there we go. Yes, well, I would totally agree that Goodfellas would be. So um, my, my, do you want mine? So I tried to think about like, what does that mean? A, a burgeoning cinephile. And I would imagine you'd want to push someone towards something that they have to work out a little bit, that mm. there's, that maybe there's multiple interpretations um, that maybe a main, a more mainstream film might, might not have. Um, so I went through a whole list of different films and the films of Darren Aronofsky came up. I thought Ooh. that would be a really good starting point. And nice. I'd probably show, that burgeoning cinephile mother because I feel it's really contentious and really polarizing. And then you could put them off film for life. And then I could, and they yeah. could become a book lover <laughs> instead. That's okay. right. So we've got a bit of polarization. No, here. no, I loved mother, oh, but I'm love. just I saying. I hated mother. Yeah, he hated it. And so, you know. But well, anyway, I yeah. didn't, I didn't arrive at mother. I thought that was maybe a little, maybe an advanced class cinephile. Right. <laughs> um, but like as a starting point, I thought um, Donnie Darko would be. Mm. Um, I agree. Yeah. Love it. And the reason I chose that was because I remember seeing that at the New Zealand Film Festival and just being, I felt like it changed me, you know, like I wasn't a child. I wasn't really in my formative years in the way that Beetlejuice affected me. I was in my early 20s, probably. Mm. I was at university. I was studying film. I think those are our formative years. I think those were the more yeah. formative years, yeah. Um, and to this day, and I think this is one of the key things is that I don't fully understand it. No, and I'm kind of, I'm not ashamed to admit that. Like it still is a bit of a puzzle box to me. Um, do you not understand wormholes and time loops? And <laughs> do you not understand that? It's like do you, you not fold a it? piece of paper in half and, and you, you stick a pencil, stick a pencil through, through yeah. it. Yeah. That's basically <laughs> science. And that's in yeah. Thor as well. Yeah. Yes, so therefore, is. Um, so that's all you need to know. Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> simple. Yeah. Um, but Donnie Darko is so, beautiful and poignant and yes i do have a bit of a crush on jake gyllenhaal mm, of course so do i i mean that was probably the starting point but it's a great cast mm. it's incredibly creepy with the bunny rabbit and mm. it's got drew barrymore it's got tears for fears tears it's for got, fears um, head over heels the most amazing it's amazing soundtrack amazing scene yeah. yeah and that wonderful that wonderful shot where they get out of the back of the van mm -hmm. and the yeah. camera is that's to, that? that's to head over heels is it it's in slow-mo as oh, well to start with yeah oh i love the moment where the therapist the therapist she agrees with donnie <laughs> you know like he's he's he, she's sort of helping him make sense of his delusion and then she starts mm. to believe that he's probably telling the truth which is kind of terrifying there's this moment of yeah oh my gosh you know yeah yeah and it's also got the the exquisite line reading of I'm beginning to doubt your commitment to sparkle motion, which oh, I've quoted yes. in that's every the, context. That's the girls, isn't it? Who are Yeah, the dance yeah, troupe. The mother. Yes. Is the she a teacher really, or is she a parent? She's a parent, but she comes and does uh, lessons with the kids. You know how she's talking about the spectrum of <laughs> everything falls on the spectrum of love or fear, right? Yeah. And Donnie really hates that. Yeah, and he, I and he... I hate that in life when people say, "Oh, you're angry, you're just afraid." I'm like, "No, sometimes you can just I get angry." I actually believe it. Yeah, I believe it one hundred percent. And we could do a whole freaking podcast on that. But okay, oh, on and I didn't get it off of 
Donnie Darko, but I hear you. Okay. <laughs> um, but I feel like that's accessible. Yeah, mm. it's accessible for someone who's like starting that journey, mm. um, and it's kind of mainstream and exciting enough. And but it's also enough. indie enough. That's and it's the thing. It isn't mainstream in a Fast and Furious yeah. way or a Top Gun Maverick way yeah. or whatever. So I agree. <clears throat> I think that's a superb choice. It requires attention. Yes, it does. Yes. I and suggested that to my my 15-year-old virgining cinephile nephew a, a few weeks ago, and he loved it. Mm. So really? there you go. Your, your theory was put into practice uh, very recently, Dan. <laughs> Dan, do you want to carry us on? Um, talk about a movie oh, yeah. that is connected with you or one that you kind of see yourself in. Oh, okay. So I figured this was the category that was the most kind of revealing or potentially like vulnerable making. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, like film is a really personal medium, I think. And the things that resonate with you in film can can be quite exposing when you talk about them with people. Um, so I, I will trust you to um it's just between the three it's of just us, between Dan. The three of don't us. worry no one else will hear just you two and your number one fan um <clears throat> so well i am i am a, a, a i'm a homosexual person and um so therefore i kind of went towards the films that um sh- like portrayed how i was feeling not necessarily that i saw myself in but portrayed how i was feeling as i was growing up gay mm. and there were two that i couldn't really choose between but i did choose uh the first one was like um it's called beautiful thing and that was kind of from my childhood and that was the first film that i watched that i was like ah, oh, this is resonating with me in a way that hasn't that other things haven't resonated with mm. me before um, but the one I settled on was um, Weekend by Andrew Hay, oh, yes. which um, is a pretty small, maybe slightly unknown or less known film. Um, but Andrew Hay, I think, went on to make the TV show Looking um, mm. with Jonathan Groff. Yeah, and good so, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Weekend was basically just a two-hander between these two guys who have a bit of a meet-cute in a gay bar and spend the weekend together. Mm. And one of them is... Um, has got the the ticking clock of he's moving to a different country. So they've got this like short lived, but very intense and extremely human Mm. connection. Mm. And they, they, it, it just entails them talking, drinking, taking drugs, having sex, uh, just spending time together Mm. and being really drawn towards each other, knowing that it might not last. And it's, it's just really poignant and, um, true. It's a beautiful film. I remember when it, out i'm sure i gave it five stars mm. do you remember who the actors were it's not josh o'connor is it i can it? grab imdb i've got it right here you've got it there tom <clears throat> cullen and chris new one of them one of them showed up on downton abbey i remember that really? oh i think yeah that's that's what i'm thinking of tom cullen looks like the kind of person who would show up on downton abbey mm. yeah yeah he was the darker haired one right I, he doesn't look, I, I, both of the photos are not very helpful on, on IMDb. Yeah. I can't tell who is who. I, I, I love that movie as well. I mean, as, yeah. a, as, a, as a queer man myself, I, I remember mm-hmm. watching that and, and it being quite just real. Uh, one of the things mm-hmm. that struck me is the, um, and I wasn't really out then when I watched it, so I wouldn't fully understand this until now, really, but um, just the, the relationship with the family and how they're asking and inquiring yeah. about his love life. And he kind of yeah. feels very like, I don't know how to talk about this because it's really yeah. hard to talk about those things in those settings because you know that family members have a lot of underlying um, 
understandings about what romance is that if you truly mm. see what you said, it would be quite confronting for people because it would mm. challenge their own perceptions of, I guess, heteronormativity. And so I, I found that tension. I remember watching it, not fully understanding it, but being really curious about it and then mm. understanding years later uh, what yeah. was going on in that, that moment. Yeah. Yeah, there was that, the whole opening kind of situation where he was hanging out with his straight friends and it it kind of spoke to that situation where you where you're gay and you're in a in a straight environment and you love the people and they love you and they're totally accepting of you and you they are your people but you don't 100% fit in and he, mm. he felt felt a little bit alienated and mm. it wasn't anything to do it, it wasn't anything about him not liking the people or them being prejudiced or them or being prejudiced exactly yeah just like not fit yeah and 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 so that and he was lonely within that within that setting just missing that that one thing that he needed mm. i felt that was and i feel like it's one of those universal stories i don't think it's like an exclusively gay story but at the same time it kind of is like the experience that he has is i don't know i, I don't want to say anything too absolute but speaking as the only not gay man in the village right now um <laughs> you're in the minority i have seen it i'm a minority yes. um i have seen it and it was definitely um it was definitely moving and touching mm. relatable and transferable mm. but i do totally get the the power for you to see yourself or mm. your prospective self on screen, I totally get that that's something that, that that isn't my place to feel or to have. But I would say it was it was absolutely relatable, beautiful. As an ally, you can totally feel that's right empowered to to share that experience with us. Yeah, so yes. <laughs> I can't I can't help but see that in connection with two films. One is Brokeback Mountain, yeah. which I, mm -hmm. I love, but it's so yeah. sad. Uh, it's another sad gay story where someone dies mm -hmm. then. Um, and the other one is God's Own Country, which is not sad. It's got oh, quite a yes. wonderful ending. That's the one with Josh O'Connor, yes. I think, that I'm yeah. thinking of. Sorry, as you were. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's set in the, the, the sort of at a farm. And I don't know if they're in Scotland or in the north of England, somewhere like that. Um, yeah. Very rough and rugged. But I, I love that movie as well. That film was interesting because it didn't, you would almost expect the setting to have a lot of homophobia but there didn't seem to be no one was really racked with guilt or insecurity or shame around their sexuality he was just a promiscuous guy and but there was there was no commentary about that about his gayness mm. um yeah that was a great film mm. yeah nice thanks dan sarah what's the film that that you can that you mm. saw yourself in I feel what did you see I feel very unvulnerable and very superficial oh, okay. here right now because <laughs> I'm while you're talking I'm listening 100% but then there's 10% of my brain also going Sarah choose something else because <laughs> I'm trying to think what connected with me in a more meaningful way and I will just say that on my shortlist for these films was Silence of the Lambs Ooh. which is one of my top two favorite films of all time Ooh. do you and enjoy eating because, people every now and again well that's that... it you see the cannibalism you know it's, <laughs> the like it's relatable it's no the Chianti, right? it's it was all around Jodie Foster I wanted sure. desperately to, to to be like Jodie Foster to have yeah. her career um when I was younger and wanted to be a bit of an actress <laughs> um and was a massive fan of her and the film I found very affecting and I found it very affecting in a, cine, a cinephiliac way as well the the soundtrack and the blah blah and the blah and and my interests in law enforcement and I trained as a lawyer and so on however I did not choose that as my 
see myself in it film because I can't see myself in it and I would never be as intrepid as um, Clarice Starling. So this is where I come off as almost as superficial as anyone who would choose The Holiday as their most watched <laughs> film. Um, a film that I come back to time and again uh, is The Talented Mr. Ripley. Oh, now, I do not see myself in Tom Ripley. No. Um, but God bless Matt Damon in that incredible role that he played. Tom Ripley, of course, is somebody... Um, closeted um, and insecure and incredibly bright and lacking his own sense of identity and desperately trying to create an identity out of the people around him, all of whom are absolutely horrific and rich and snobby and awful. I don't see myself in any of that. Um, but I absolutely adore the film and everything about the film and the way that it is made and and uh, directed, but certainly performed. And I think actually for me, it's Italy in the mm. 1950s mm. if i'm right in saying that it was the 50s i'm fairly sure that it I is so, yeah. um i am a huge italophile and i i speak italian pretty well and i spend all my holiday dreams in italy and i can't wait to go back and i also am somebody who loves to hark back to whatever i think of as being the halcyon days of yore and for me maybe the 1950s would have been that of course if i'd been in the 1950s i'd be miserable because i would be um, oppressed and um you know and there would be a terrible political situation and so on so really it's escapism it's living vicariously as if I were Kate Blanchett, whom we mentioned earlier, with a tiny waist and a beautiful skirt and the most amazing <laughs> costumes and uh, and all this wealth. But not Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, or Gwyneth. <laughs> I love all Gwyneth's outfits in the whole whole thing as well. I love them being in Italy. They go down to what's ostensibly um, towards the Amalfi Coast or down towards, mm. uh, you know, even south of that. I love them being in Rome. Um and so really, what a banal example compared with yours, Dan. But I don't I, think it's banal. I just think it's unusual. Really? Just surprising, I suppose. I think not it's unusual. not that I see myself characterized. It's that I see myself living you just want to go there. that world. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. You know, gee, that would be nice, wouldn't it? To yeah. stay at the Danielli and to have that kind of money for a weekend and mm. to look like that and be like that and eat in those cafes and live in that era. And to kill someone and steal their identity. See, maybe not that part. <laughs> let that part go, actually. Okay. I, you know what? Later, I'm going to think about this record, and I'm going to go, Sarah, you should have gone with blah, blah, blah. Silence the Lambs. So that's right. So I'm going to spend the rest of the pod course half listening to the rest of you while I come <laughs> up with some better I, I love no, this, Sarah. Mm. I love both of your movies, you know, the, both The Talented Mr. Ripley and Silence of the Lambs. There is a real darkness mm. in those movies in terms yeah. of what's happening on right in front of us, but really you're connecting with a whole range of things underneath, which I guess speaks to uh, your our conf all of our confidence in, in engaging with cinema, because I think some people rally against the that. It's like when I think about... Um, you know, I, I my mental health took a real dive in the first quarter of this year, being remotely working for an ex, you know eight months, just kind of mm. really plummeted. And so, a lot of films I couldn't handle anything with any kind of real human emotions. I was just like, <laughs> you know, anything too real I couldn't handle. Mm. Whereas horror films, give me, you know, sign me up. Mm. I, I can watch genre horror films because it is so heightened and 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 that's a quite a happy place for me. Whereas for other people, you know, when their mental health is low, it's the worst thing for them at that time. Yeah. Um, that's just interesting here. I guess we're getting a sense of what you do connect with Sarah, which is 
the look, the sound, the place, the but people, also, the heart. I think actually, I think you've helped me out, Jeremy, and I can redeem myself somewhat. What what those two films do have in common is protagonists, if you count Hannibal Lecter as a protagonist, or indeed Clarice Starling, uh, and all and obviously Tom Ripley and the other as deeply flawed, deeply flawed humans. Um, I'm fascinated by deeply flawed um, humans. I'm fascinated by criminals, and I'm fascinated by um, what causes somebody like Tom Ripley or Hannibal Lecter to be the way they are. I'm actually not very judgmental about uh, people who do terrible things. I'm much more inclined to want to figure them out psychologically, and I'm much more inclined to show them some sort of compassion. Um, and so actually, I would like to say, I'd like to, I would like to uh, redact my former answer <laughs> and say the reason I'm drawn to those two is because I have a strong sense of social justice, <laughs> uh, deep compassion for the the uh, socially criticised, and that that's maybe also something that I'm drawn to. Because I will watch dark movies throughout a pandemic. I'm I'm mm. absolutely drawn to the gritty documentaries, the cults, the horrible stuff. Yeah, I, I get that, and I think you know I see that you 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 are a lover of people, right? And I think. Those movies have the enigma of um, Hannibal Lecter or Buffalo Bill or mm. Ripley himself, you know, mm, and mm, and the and the protagonist, the female protagonist, that you can potentially put yourself in their shoes and think, ah, how would I, how would I engage and figure this person out to, sure. yeah. you know, kind of the best outcome for all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I'll jump in with mine. I mean, there's a clear yeah. link to all of these. Um, <laughs> Because I agree with you, Dan, and I think as you know, it's it's interesting when I look back at my cinema watching time and the films that do anything with kind of queer representation, particularly particularly male representation. Um, you, I'm drawn to it, and I'm also repelled by it. Like I, I've never seen and do not want to see um, the one that everybody loves, uh, uh, "Call Me by Your Name." Because I oh. find this the whole dynamic of a teacher-student relationship. I just find that too gross. And now with Army Hammer coming out mm. with all sorts of weird things, I don't think I'll ever watch it. But you know, so Not it kind now. of can go. It would be ruined for you now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it could go both ways for me. I didn't want to see it anyway beforehand. But if it connects with me, it really connects with me because it will speak to something that you just don't see on cinema. So mm. um, I'm going with a film called Crazy. Oh yeah. R A Z Y. Yeah, yeah, which came out in 2005. So you mentioned a film festival a viewing of Donnie Darko, Dan. I mean, I would have seen this at the, the film festival in Wellington when I was um, working at the Embassy Theatre. And yeah, and, and I, just re I just remember, you know, those moments where you have such a, a simple a simple phrase that sits in your mind and mine was, oh, that's me, you know, like that, that kind mm. of simplicity. And I think it was him dealing with his homosexuality, but it was in completely contextually in his family which i mean for any queer person that's always a big part of their journey is how that makes sense in their family um and i just it was hopeful as well because it's a story and this is a spoiler but hey for anyone watching maybe they'd want a bit of hope it's about his relationship with his dad and um his his fear of losing that really special relationship with his dad with being gay and ultimately it resolves in quite a positive way which again i think is something we're saying about queer cinema it's so often negative like I, I know how important it is to understand and learn about the AIDS crisis, but so many AIDS stories are just horrifically depressing. And it's, yeah. you know, and, and sometimes they are a shorthand for, um, you know, gay relationships are doomed, which is just a horrible message to get all the time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but that's crazy. And I'll, I do want to shout out to the director and co-writer 
um, who went on to do um, Wild, which I love, Dallas Buys uh, Club, and he did Pretty Little Lies. No, no, what's the one? Little Big Lies? Oh, those. Big, big Little Lies. Big Little Lies. No, but he um, passed away last lies. year, Jean-Marc Val Vallier. 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 Yeah. He died. It's really sad. Yeah. Did he, really? Yeah, Have December of last year. Christmas Day, oh. maybe? Oh. Yeah, Christmas Day last year. And was crazy in was it French? In, is my memory serving me, or was it in English? French, French Canadian, yeah. And then they spent a lot of the budget on the music because they had like Pink Floyd and Rolling Stones, all these great songs from the sixties and seventies. David Bowie, you know, yeah, good times. Do you know That's... what's awkward? Both of my films actually are queer texts, and they are very, very negative because Buffalo Bill is 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 well, um, portrayed is as really, really negative. Um, and so is Tom Ripley by dint of being, God bless him, murderous, charismatic, lacking in identity. He's, he's duplicitous Ripley. to a That's murderous right. degree. So that, and also Jodie Foster's gay, but we didn't know it at the time. So there you go. I so feel like Jodie Foster was always kind of coded as lesbian. Maybe. Maybe. But, you know, Science of Lambs, deeply problematic from, oh, a, from a queer angle. It was picketed. It was like protested against. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mind you, I would say... 12 Monkeys, deeply problematic from the mental health aspect. I didn't want to get into it, Jeremy. You've heard me rant about how I feel about the depiction <laughs> of mental illness on screen. We don't have time for that. But yeah, interesting, isn't it? Mm. Anyway. I do like that idea that you resonated or a film resonated with you that was more uplifting and, and the, the queerness or the homosexuality was just part of the tapestry of the story. Mm. It was front and centre, but it was also like, within a whole lot of other things going on. And I must admit, I did see Crazy once, but I can't remember very much about it. But I remember having a really uh, warm and comforted feeling from it because it wasn't following that bury your gaze trope of like, here's a here's a sad gay person and they're going to die in the third act mm. um, or they're going to produce some kind of like um, pathos for the straight characters to, mm. to kind of coast on. Um, which was, I think, really endemic in the 90s and early 2000s. And like like you say, Brokeback Mountain is, is a complete masterpiece. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and it's almost my favorite film of all time. But um, And it should have won the Oscar. Mm. I agree. Um, I agree. Yep. For many and reasons, because what's the face is all embroiled, embroiled yeah. and stuff now. <laughs> but it definitely lived in that, that, that cliche of one of them had to die. And it was... It was uh, the promiscuous one, or the the one who was like more um, more out than the Heath Ledger character. Uh, still a masterpiece, though. Mm. But that's a that's an awesome choice. the The title of your film, C R A Z Y, it was separated into letters, wasn't it? Yeah, with with a positive, with dots. What I think it's the first. Yeah. Full stops. Full stops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, an it's an acronym, which I found out recently because Sierra knows I. You know, in teaching, Dan, as you know, there are many acronyms, and I oh, am, I rally against them because I just think Good. they are unhelpful, elitist, and quite lazy. But I found yeah. out that what I actually rally against is uh, initialisms. So the difference between, apparently, an initialism and an acronym is an acronym forms a word, whereas initialism yes. is just the initials. Is, and I yeah. quite like an acronym then. So I need yeah. to kind of maybe change my acronym because I like that this is, you know, this is the, uh, so the, the leaders of crazy are the five um, initials of the brothers, the five brothers in the family. Right. Uh, Christian, Renat, I can't remember. They're all the different names. Um, and so that that's where the crazy comes from. But, uh, you know, obviously it's a pun with what's going on with the crazy yeah. family and mm. uh, and the kind of internal turmoil that, that his character's going on. Yeah. 
interesting that you should um, bemoan the fact that uh, Brokeback Mountain lost a crash because actually it occurs to me, ladies and germs, going back to category one, I've probably seen Crash more <gasps> times than any other film because I taught it for three oh. years running. See, I and don't think you... those those qualify. Well, I, right. I, I did think not. about this. Because when you teach a film, as we all know, you you watch, watch it, watch it times. many times mm. and you watch all the scenes from it, mm. the pertinent scenes many times. So that could accidentally be the film I've seen the most. But let's move on. You, you don't have to tell people that. <laughs> I it's won't okay. Do, in that you case, can keep that to Lea, yourself. Let's just keep that to ourselves. <laughs> All right, what's our final category? Best film it's of favorite all time. film of all time. Sarah, you kick us this off. Is tough. This is tough. Oh. How do you possibly? Well, how do you possibly, Dan, is when you are an interest when you're interested in film and people know that, it's the mm. first question everybody asks, mate. You've got to have your list ready. I've had this list going since the nineties. Oh. So, I feel underprepared. My favourite film of all time used to be Silence of the Lambs, but then I got real more recently and I said, You know what, Sarah? Your favourite film actually. And this is a film, yeah, that if you were flicking through the telly in the olden days when you had telly and you flicked through the telly and if it came on, you'd think, oh, I'll watch a bit of this and you'd watch it all the way to the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or it's the film that I can watch at any point of any time and immediately be drawn into it again. It is Drum roll, please. the 1995-96 masterpiece by Michael Mann <gasps> starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro with side actors Tom Sizemore, Van, Val Kilmer, and Ashley Judd, and Diane Venora, and the father of uh, Angelina Jolie. And the film, ladies and gents, is Heat. I think I knew this about you. Oh, you will have known this about me. And it's not to be confused with The Heat, because I used to say to the young people, they'd say, Miss, what's your favourite film? And I'd say Heat, and they'd go with, with um, Melissa McCarthy, yeah. and I'd say no. Um so Heat is, um, it's a crime drama, a gangster film of sorts. You've got your cop who's not all good and you've got your robber who's not all bad. Um, and it's a cat and mouse tale. It goes for at least two and a half hours. It is sensational filmmaking, sensational score, photography, performances, dramatic art. It is gritty. It is dark. It's depressing, and it is absolutely my most favourite film of all time. And I will just share a little bit of an anecdote. I came upon it, uh, my sister and I were visiting London and Europe as uh, university students back in the 90s. And um, Shout out to Philly. Shout out to Philly, because her sister, which is me, said to her, <laughs> we're at Leicester Square, let's go to this movie, here's a poster, look, it's, it's um, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Heat, we knew nothing more than that, let's go. And I remember sitting in the cinema in Leicester Square, watching this extraordinary film, and I remember it got to a certain point narratively, and I, I must have sort of either looked at my watch or thought, oh, it's going to end soon, because, you know, films don't go for that long. Um, oh, I wish it would just keep going, and it kept going, <laughs> and it kept going, and it kept going, and the narrative kept rolling, and I was absolutely intoxicated by the whole thing, and mm. I swear it must be two and a half hours long. Uh, and two it, hours, you know, 50 minutes. Two fifty, is it? Yeah. Good lord! So flipping yeah. it, nearly three hours, and loved absolutely every minute of it to this day. Um, and it ends with a Moby song, oh. God moving over the face of the waters at the denouement. So, um, Heat. Have you both seen Heat? I have seen Heat. I think I've only seen it once when it was released. But I don't share your love of like gritty police gangstery underworld type genres mm. 
like I appreciate Goodfellas and I appreciate Heat, but it's never my go-to. Mm. But I can I can appreciate a good film mm. for sure. I loved Heat. Yeah, I love mm. Heat, and I I think I mean Michael Mann for me. There's two movies that stand out as Heat and The Last of the Mohicans, which again mm. haven't gone back and watched that movie. Not sure how problematic that is, but love the music. <laughs> Madeline Stowe's in that as well. Um, oh yeah. But, the heat for me this is the is... most Madeline Stowe has been talked about in probably 20 it years. It is. You're so right. You are so right. Everyone's going, Madeline who? Madeline why? Ah, That's right. <laughs> Madeline why? Um, no, I, <laughs> I, you know, the, the gravitas of Robert De Niro and Al Pacino being, well, in a film again, because they were in Godfather 2, weren't they? But they didn't share any scenes because mm-hmm. they were separated by a generation. In uh, in movie movie narrative land, um, but the gravitas of that was lost on me because I wasn't familiar with them at the time. Mm. And um, but I just I, I thought the the pacing is so great in that film. Mm. And the, the thing, again, the things that stand out to me from a final sequence where they're, they're hiding behind a shipping containers. Oh, but that don't whole sequence. But don't spoiler anything. Okay, I cool. I don't remember anything else. Um, and <laughs> there were shipping containers involved. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think of The Dark Knight because The Dark Knight drew heavily from heat, uh, especially in the opening sequence. And so I guess mm. to make more connections, you know, Heath Ledger's in there as well with Brokeback Mountain. Mm. But yeah, so that, that heat for me has a, has a very um, positive place in my, my movie movie fandom. But I've only seen it maybe once all the way through and I can't yeah. really remember it that well. So and maybe it's, it's really time tricky. to go back. It narratively is actually quite tricky. So mm. when Jeremy says about the opening sequence, what you mean is the opening sequence in The Dark Knight, which has that fantastic um, bank robbery bank scene. Robbery, yeah. Now, there is a brilliant bank robbery scene and an extended, uh, still actually genuinely not just by Sarah Watt, but by normal people known as the best gun battle scene ever. Um, forgive me, Sergio Leone. Um <laughs> Is the street scene in Los Angeles um, as the the robbery has taken place? This is in heat, uh, and and they they come out into the street and have to make their way to safety. And it is extraordinary. And you're absolutely right, Jeremy, that um, Chris Nolan drew from that for The Dark Knight, and um, and many other films have drawn from that mm. um, for their own uh, street battle. Uh, Gun, gunfight scenes so um highly I, recommend i'm just scrolling through it on imdb mm. and it has quite the cast it really does henry um what's his name henry rollins is in it yeah henry rollins plays a bodyguard and hank azaria from the simpsons oh, wow. and natalie portman natalie portman is absolutely marvelous in it, she's and it she always is she's the she's kind of a stepdaughter type mm. with um quite significant uh, emotional issues it's incredibly well written and and realistic it doesn't have the um that it doesn't have the goodfellas glamour and mm. it doesn't have the godfather um sort of styling it has a very um 1990s los angelian um that kind of cops and robbers type era styling from mm. good old michael mann and i hear your last of the mohicans which i only saw once and never again, but I would raise you Collateral as a as a. Oh, I do like Collateral. Uh, that's a good film. That's um, um, Tom Cruise. Jamie Foxx as a roving assassin. Yeah, yeah with Jamie Foxx. Tom Cruise Fox. with with silver hair. Tom Cruise with silver hair. That's, that's all right. I know about the film. It's it's that's absolutely right. brilliant. So yeah, that's your other. Good I just want to shout out. Um, this is going to be a very strange connection, <laughs> but um, Amy Brennan Brennan is in this mm. film, and she's in The Leftovers, which I parrot on about all the time. Is my favourite TV gang. series All of the, the decade. It's so mm-hmm. brilliant. 
um, and Ashley Judd. Now, Ashley Judd is one of the two actors that Peter Jackson came out on Twitter recently, well, last couple of years, to say that they were, they were thinking about casting Ashley Judd mm. in the Lord of the Rings franchise. And Miramax came out and said, no, she's difficult to work with as mm. part of Harvey Weinstein's smear campaign for those That's right. um, those, those young women that, that were successful in, in pushing office advantage, uh, advances um, and her career was sort of tanked by the, the Weinstein company as a result. And this is where the weird connection comes in. Uh, we just watched Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion this week, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I have Your to first say, time? No, no, I've seen it before. Oh, okay. But it was, I put it on, I, I thought, oh, I was, you know, I watched the start of it. It was like 11 p.m. at night. And me and my boyfriend and, my, and his flatmate, we ended up watching the whole thing. But in that movie is Justin yeah. Thoreau, who was the lead in The Leftovers, and Mira Silvino, who was the second person in that text yeah. uh, that Peter Jackson said. And I, I, I can't remember if it was Ashley Judd or Mira Silvino, but one of them came out publicly and said when they got that text, they just broke down and cried with mm. kind of, I guess, sadness, but also relief to know that mm. this thing they thought might have happened actually did happen. And Peter Jackson yeah. and Fran Walsh coming forward and saying that, mm. what, a, what a gift that was. Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, yeah, there's a strange connection based on a nice context. Thank it's, you. It's so gratifying to see um, Mira Savino, at least, kind of having this late career resurgence, and um, she's such an interesting mm. person. And I mean, she's kind of Hollywood royalty, being the daughter of Paul Savino, and she won an Oscar when she was like in her twenties. That's and, right. And she was just that was for Mighty Aphrodite. Mighty Aphrodite, yeah. And that was a Woody Allen film. And that, yes, so, there are no oh problems gosh. there. No problems oh, that but, um, I can see. I, yeah, we used to love Mira Silvino in yeah. the nineties. And and Romeo and Michelle is just genius. Mm. It really holds up. You know, some of those nineties really films like Never Been Kissed. Wah wah. Um, I mean, I love it, but wah wah. I'm not Josie Grossy anymore. It's the fact that her school teacher likes her, and then when he finds out she's of age, he's not interested in her anymore. I'm like, okay, this is not, yeah, this is not a good. No. That's know. how it was in the olden days, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to jump in with my favorite movie, and then I'm yeah. going to yeah. to you, Dan, to finish us. Oh, off. I'm going to. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you get the final word. A lot of pressure. Um, I, a lot of pressure. My fi- favorite film, I don't think, is going to be a surprise to any regular listeners because I feel like I a lot I mean, after Buffy, I seem to bring it up in every fil- every podcast I can. Can I step in and say what I think it probably <laughs> no, is? No, no, you can nah. hold your So this is uh, a 1979 film that came off the back of Star Wars. People were excited because, you know, science fiction and hopeful movies after a time of Vietnam War and things like that were kind of in vogue. So they went along to the cinema to see this this movie that they thought was going to be... Um, <laughs> for those of you listening, Sarah's doing actions and miming up the movie. Um, they thought it was going to be something similar to Star Wars, and that was Ridley Scott's Alien. So, oh, I thought you were going to say Blade Runner. No, <laughs> I you were. Okay. Blade Runner's eighty-two, but Alien, um, which was was you know oh, yeah. it went along, and it was horrific because uh, it was not like Star Wars at all. But I watched this movie, um, I used to say I watched this movie the most, and I think I watched it sort of 40 or 50 times, which tells you how many times I've seen Strippy Ballroom. Um, and, <laughs> and it's the movie that just keeps on giving. There are layers of subconscious storytelling. There's themes of motherhood and uh, other um, topics, which I will not mention, that are very disturbing. Uh, it's, it's a film where, um, and I will say, spoiler alert, um, in a film of four four white males uh an african-american and two women the four white males get knocked out first which i think is quite um 
quite progressive for its time. It still sort of holds up. And uh, production-wise and special effects-wise, it is still incredible to this day. I mean, the alien bursting scene is maybe a little bit, you know, you can tell it's a puppet, but beyond that, it's, it's really exciting. And the music is wonderful. It's just, <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving. And the sequel is in my top 10 of all time. It's my eighth favorite film, Aliens. Um, but Alien number one is, is the movie that takes it out. I mean, there's no, there's no real dispute in that. That's a, that's a stone cold classic. And that was, I'm glad you said Alien because it was close to being the one that I was going to choose as my favorite today. Hey! Um, because, but I decided to exclude any films that I'd taught in class. So Alien happened to be something that I did watch quite a lot with my kids. So, but it is, it is an exquisite film. It like atmosphere um, and the design of it. And of course the, the HR Geiger um, designed Alien itself. The face huggers the the cocoons like everything about it works perfectly mm. but it's it's not it's quite slow as well when i when i rewatched it it's actually very it takes its time and it's kind of an adult film in the sense that it it requires patience and it requires again it requires attention mm. um it's not like a rollicking space alien jaunt it's it's actually kind of it's almost got a feeling of like a philosophical uh, meditation sometimes mm. which he really does down in prometheus right? and i'll say aliens <laughs> as well james cameron whilst it's much more actiony he takes his mm. time in that as well it takes a good hour mm. before he really happens yeah. and i will just say that kind of carrying on the queer theme that seems to be coming through i mean naturally in this podcast with <laughs> two queer people <laughs> on the podcast um when i came out to my very good friends um in wellington I went and visited them and they gave me and they both used to work at weta they gave me the alien um epic weta model uh you know as sort of a a nod to the chest burster and coming out which i kind of think is amazing oh Um, that's cute (laughs) that's incredible oh yeah it's you dan what's your favorite film of all time uh now see i'm really i'm nervous about this because i feel like i'm playing with the big dogs and you've 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 got your top tens and you've got your your firm favorites and everything and i'm just wildly shooting in the dark because i've never been able to answer this question properly and so I spitballed a whole, like, as soon as I started thinking about one film, I started mm. thinking about 10 others. And I went, I cycled through a lot of things. Here are the some that didn't make the cut, just so you know <laughs> the eclecticism. Um, I thought about The Hours. Um, mm. I thought about Rocky Horror Picture Show. I thought about A Single Man, um, mm. the Colin Firth, Julianne Moore, Tom Ford film. But I have taught that in school, so I decided not to. And I ended up, deciding because favorite film is really hard i decided on my favorite genre and then i chose a film from my favorite genre so i think jeremy maybe you and i share this but like i i love horror um as a genre um it's always my go-to genre and even though i'm quite a happy well-adjusted person i I love horror and i'm going to choose something that may not be my favorite tomorrow but it is my favorite today and that's um robert dave eggers robert eggers the witch or the vivage really yeah um i could regret this yes i could regret this choice like as soon as we finish recording but right now (laughs) that that feels right it was either that or adam's family values Mm. so um which is a bit like beetlejuice which is a bit like beetlejuice too much like beetlejuice whereas the witch is like the holiday (laughs) so no okay go sorry (laughs) the slander on kate winslet um (laughs) 
yeah, so The Witch was, uh, it's only a few years old. Um, I remember it having just the most profound impact on me. And I think sometimes when we choose our favorite film, it might, might not be the most highly acclaimed or whatever. I, it, although this was quite highly acclaimed. It's the one that had the most kind of resonant and long-lasting emotional impact on you or the one that made you feel something you know something and and you held on to that feeling so for me it was just i've i've been fascinated by um like the crucible was one of my favorite plays growing up and so witchcraft and witch law has always been of interest because it's always got that that undercurrent or, or overcurrent of um of feminism of woman of female power um witches have been misunderstood through generations or through time and um, women have been subject to a lot of um, cruelty and oppression on under suspicion of being a witch all of that stuff mm. kind of comes into play this film was I think is it Robert Eggers or Dave Eggers the director who made The it's, Lighthouse it's and Robert Eggers Robert Dave Eggers. Eggers is the author the of author that of Confederacy of Dunces yes mm -hmm. So Robert Eggers. Yep. Yes. So he went on to make um, the Northman, the Northman, and the Lighthouse, mm -hmm. and um, this was uh, this film, The Witch, was all of the dialogue was was very true to its time. So it was set in the mid 1600s, I believe, um, it, as America was being colonized, um, the first settlers in America, and all of the the language and the dialogue was very true to that time. So it's very old an old form of English, which makes it kind of potentially a little impenetrable at first, but as you get used to it, it's actually quite poetic. And I just thought it was um, very, very unsettling. Um, the goat, Black Philip, mm -hmm. um, when he offers uh, for her to live deliciously is one of the most chilling moments that I've ever experienced in a film. Um, it all it's all very small and simple but it's extremely affecting mm. and um the final kind of denouement is which i won't ruin because i think everyone should watch the witch um is is just like this perfect and horrific and spine tingling moment and i i look for those kinds of moments in films so it might not be my favorite tomorrow but it's it's definitely in my top 10 wow yeah have you guys seen it yeah. I haven't. I haven't seen. It. Have you seen it, Sarah? Yeah, I have. Back it was in, the back first, whenever. first proper film I think that Anya Taylor Joy. That yeah, was her was. first like lead role. I think. Yes, it was. That yeah. was her breakout role, and after that, it was the chess prodigy, uh, the Queen's TV Gambit. Show. That's yes. right. En route to yeah. megastardom. And also the father in The Witch, which was totally unexpected. But if you remember the the UK Office with Ricky Gervais, mm. his incredibly obnoxious and very tall friend um who he was always kind of trying to live yeah. up to and Finchy? The one who threw he may have thrown a shoe over yeah, a Finchy. 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 yes yeah. he plays <laughs> he plays the dad and it was so unexpected oh wow Ralph really Anison. yes and he was in a black mirror episode i think he was in i watched the the musical where everyone's talking about jamie where everybody's talking about jamie and he plays okay. the horrible dad in that as well okay. he's a great so, actor yeah he is yeah, he's got he's got range. Have you seen The Northman? I have not because in Bahrain we don't get all the films. Um, I mean, your your listeners may be interested, but we we only we get all of the big blockbusters, but we also get a lot of um, like really bottom shelf 
uh, straight to DVD type action films, mm. the kind of Jean Claude Van Damme or the the bad Nicolas Cage films that would never see the light of a cinema in New Zealand mm. or in most Western countries, but they're very very popular um, in the Middle East. Mm. So we it sometimes it really takes me by surprise what what we can see and what isn't available to us mm. because we weren't able to watch Doctor Strange, the recent Doctor Strange and. Lightyear was banned and The Eternals was banned um, for various LGBT content. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it can be a little difficult to be a cinephile in Bahrain. Mm. <laughs> yeah, wow. I just yeah. to say, I haven't seen The Witch yet and it's one I want to watch. I think The Witch and Game Night are the two I haven't seen in this discussion today. But there yeah. is part of that new wave of horror. You know, I've recently watched um, Hereditary, which was oh. so great, but so terrifying. And I loved mm. Midsummer. Um, yeah. which is the same director. I still get to see uh, The Lighthouse and um, The Northman, um, mm. but I love I love a good visual spectacle. Yeah, yeah. And actually Hereditary was close to being my choice for today, as, as apparently 20 other films were mm, as well. Mm, mm. But yes, Hereditary <laughs> is, is incredible. Nice. Hey, well, thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on this, this journey, the, the oh. movies that made us. And also thank you for giving us the title. I believe you, you came to the title today. Did I? Oh, I I didn't intend to, but I'm I'm gratified that you used it. Thank mm. you, and I really appreciate being a guest on your wonderful podcast. It's it's a bit of a dream come true, well, and you so keep fortuitous. Now. Make I, yeah. sure you keep listening I'll and keep downloading. Subscribing. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. Any last thoughts for you, Sarah? Well, I'm I'm soaked with regret about the holiday, <laughs> and I'm suddenly thinking, no. well, hang on a second, what about singing in the rain? You've seen that a lot, and what about Annie? And what about <laughs> yeah. you know? Because there are older films I probably have seen a lot. But I think, oh, Evil Under the Sun, Agatha Christie. But Sarah, let it go. Do you know what? Actually, I probably would have said Evil Under the Sun. Sorry. I don't think I did my homework on this. <laughs> Never mind. I'll just have to own it. Yeah, well, once you start pulling at that thread, you, you a cavalcade of like a million films that, that you've exactly seen. That's exactly right. Yeah. Terminator 2. Tumble out. You know all what I mean? about Eve. Terminator, well, no, I've, I've never seen all about Eve, but Terminator 2 is in my top 10 films, and I'm, guarantee, I'm sure yeah. I've seen it more than I've seen The Holiday. But did I mention it? No. Doesn't matter, I'll let it go. But <laughs> what a pleasure, though, to be provoked so to think about um, even just these five categories. Mm. Really interesting, actually. Yeah. And I'm really glad as well because I you, you two have reminded me of films that I must revisit mm. and hopefully our listeners viewers watchers as I like to call them um hopefully they will be going oh all right that sounds good or so and so's been saying I should watch blah blah or yeah. you know so I hope that people do yeah and I I really appreciate being just some guy who wandered into your podcast and I'm sharing all my um my likes with you guys and I I hope that that was um interesting thank you for sharing your vulnerability and oh, your you know your personal stories and your experience and yeah. of course you know you know how to talk about film because it's part of what you do in a, as a day job teaching yeah. others to think about film so yeah. yeah what a pleasure well thank you so much i agree and you know we we kind of this podcast was formed out of these kind of conversations dan you know i met sarah one year and we talked for two hours non-stop about cinema and then the same thing happened mm-hmm. probably on the year later and i thought Let's get let's get these people together and shout out to Max, who was part of our crew for the first um, handful of episodes. Um, I also want to shout out to Brett Goldstein. Yep, a good old Brett, who created the TV series Ted Lasso uh, and his podcast Films to Be Buried With, which um, I think it's fair to say that the, the structure of this is at least an homage to his fantastic podcast, where he talks mm-hmm. to uh, different celebrities about films that are that would similarly fall into these categories. So. Um, 
shout out to him and another one worth listening to if you like movies um yeah, yeah and and i guess just to say thank yeah. you dan thank you sarah pleasure have a, thanks, have a wonderful thanks, holiday dan have a wonderful trip sarah thank you thank you jeremy and i hope you um feel better or get better soon oh those of you listening i'm yes yes as we know currently covid positive which mm. is not a positive place to be but we're keeping oh. positive uh, good for wow. you how many times can i say positive <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of cinema in context if you enjoyed our podcast then please share it with your film loving friends you can listen to cinema in context on soundcloud spotify radio public stitcher amazon music and apple podcasts you can follow us on youtube twitter instagram and facebook which are great places to let us know what you think of this episode as well as give us suggestions for future films to discuss and compare Look out for our next episode in a month's time. And until then, no more